Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph, which adorns the cover art. Let's get on with it. Episode 65 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Co-Bride. Been one hell of a busy week this week, especially on sanctions, fraud, and money laundering. The cyber attack news has taken a bit of a dip, but I doubt that's because they're not happening. So let's crack on. As usual, I've linked the main stories which I flag in the podcast in the description. Let's start with sanctions. Now, as with last week's sanctions news, just when you think things might be quietening down, up pops a load of new information relating to sanctions across the globe and against a range of countries, though none of them unfamiliar to anyone who follows global politics. We'll start with the UK, where the government has announced new laws to prevent Russia exploiting UK legal expertise in a manner likely to support those matters which have seen Russia sanctioned over the last 18 months in particular. The proposed law will, quote, prevent UK lawyers from advising Russian companies in certain business deals, thwarting the nation from benefiting economically from the UK's world-leading legal expertise. This could include trade deals between global corporations or international money lending. The measure builds on existing sanctions put in place against Russia over the past year, which saw its companies restricted from accessing a range of legal advice and expertise from UK lawyers. The new rules will extend existing regulations on Russia using UK legal professionals to facilitate certain commercial activity which benefits the country, and may block legal professionals from advising international companies on lending decisions to Russian businesses, for example. Full press release is in the podcast description. From new sanctions to amendments to existing sanctions where the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation has announced the removal of certain entities which OFSI does not believe owned or controlled by designated persons. Add Rossiya Segodnyev as a new news media services designated person and to adjust the definition of civil telecommunication designated persons to include certain subsidiaries of ZAO Trans Telecom. The licenses affected are INT 2022-1875276 and INT 2022-1710676. The links to all of the OFSI licenses can be found in the podcast description. OFSI has also this week announced an update to the sanctions in place affecting the Republic of Belarus. Belarus has been a long-time ally of Putin and especially over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The sanctions imposed on Belarus reflect the closeness of that relationship and come against the backdrop this week of the mutiny organised against senior Russian military by Yevgeny Prigozhin and his Wagner mercenaries. Far from being the mother of all battles, it was the second cousin twice removed of all battles, but it has resulted in Prigozhin becoming exiled in Belarus, which is something not likely to extricate Belarus from sanctions anytime soon. Link to the updated guidance is in the podcast description. 
The final piece of news from OFSI comes in the form of a joint publication between OFSI and the US Office of Foreign Assets Control. The publication is an humanitarian fact sheet, full name Humanitarian Assistance and Food Security Fact Sheet, Understanding UK and US Sanctions and Their Interconnection with Russia. The fact sheet aims to provide quotes, additional clarity on US and UK-Russia-related sanctions and the relevant authorizations, exemptions and public guidance issued by the US and the UK, OFAC and OFSI to humanitarian actors, non-governmental organizations, financial institutions and companies engaged in agricultural trade or the provision of medical supplies and assistance. Link to the guidance is in the podcast description. Now, I mentioned Prigozhin earlier and his exile to Belarus. Well, the head of the Wagner mercenaries has also been in the sights of the Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control. That's, of course, the US agency, which this week sanctioned companies which are linked to Wagner through the gold trade and the group's links to the African continent, which are well documented in the press, actually, certainly since last weekend. As the press release states... The Wagner Group funds its brutal operations in part by exploiting natural resources in countries like the Central African Republic and Mali. The United States will continue to target the Wagner Group's revenue streams to degrade its expansion and violence in Africa, Ukraine and anywhere else. The final sanctions news this week comes from the United Nations Security Council, which unanimously agreed to renew the sanctions regime imposed on the Democratic Republic of the Congo. That renewal will extend to the 1st of July 2024. The press release is in the podcast description, but the resolution itself is not yet available. That's something to look forward to when it is eventually published. Now, that's it for sanctions news. We move to consider fraud news now. It starts this week in the US which what would be, relatively speaking, an insignificant story without the context of another story which broke from the US this week. The relatively insignificant story is news from the US Department of Justice, which has announced that 14 people have been charged with fraud on the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, as it's known. The PPP was one of the schemes established to protect employees from the impact, or the financial impact, certainly, of the pandemic. The allegations are that they, quote, allegedly submitted at least 29 Paycheck Protection Program loan applications that fraudulently inflated payroll expenses, doctoring bank statements and internal revenue service tax forms falsely to reflect business income. They then routed PPP loan funds through a series of bank accounts to create a false paper trail of payroll expenses. The link to that press release is in the podcast description. Now, As I said, it was relatively insignificant, and that would be just another case of alleged COVID-19 scamming, and there have been so many of them. Even, even if, and it is the case, that that case is the largest ever investigated by the US Pandemic Response Accountability Committee Fraud Task Force. However, we can now set it against the other bit of news from the US this week, and begin to see why I actually started this week's episode with it. The US Small Business Administration Office of Inspector General indicated in a report this week 
that of the $1.2 trillion in federal aid distributed as part of the US response to the pandemic, around $200 billion, that's $200 billion worth, may have been obtained fraudulently. The report, the COVID-19 Pandemic EIDL and PPP Loan Fraud Landscape, indicated that such was the haste needed in the financial response to the pandemic, the usual due diligence undertaken in such circumstances was dispensed with to see that the impact on the economy was limited. This news echoes a similar experience in the UK where the National Audit Office report tackling fraud and corruption against government, which we looked at in a special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast, episode 53.1, identified that the speed needed on the relevant part uh, on the part of relevant government departments, in addition to other things, meant that there was a higher than usual level of fraud risk associated with transactions in the pandemic response. Now, the scale of the US fraud on its pandemic responses is staggering, especially when, by comparison, the estimated fraud on the UK pandemic response schemes was around £7.3 billion, some of which has not and, it seems, will not be recovered. Certainly, seems as though the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee Fraud Task Force has its work cut out, coming in the coming months to see that a la- as large a proportion as possible of that $200 billion sum is recovered. Now, the rest of the fraud news this week comes from the United Kingdom, where, sticking with the theme of pandemic-related fraud, the Insolvency Service has disqualified two company directors for a total of 17 years for their frauds on the bounce-back loan scheme. As the press release, which is linked in the podcast description, provides, Azmi Shafi Ahmed was the sole director of AZ Financials Limited, trading as a bookkeeper from Ludgate Hill in London. In July 2020, he applied for a £50,000 bounce-back loan for the company after claiming that its previous year's turnover had been £200,000 when the company's turnover in the previous year had in fact been less than £40,000. George Pinnegar, sole director of London Sound Engineering Limited, also applied for £50,000 from the scheme for his company in July 2020 after claiming the estimated turnover for the previous year to be £250,000. While no detail is provided on the company's actual turnover in that case, the fact of the disqualification is likely to indicate the company traded at a level below that which was claimed. The two final fraud stories this week come from Pay.UK and the Financial Ombudsman Service. Pay.UK oversees the UK's retail payments operations, which includes the BAX payment system, the faster payment system and the clearing system. And it has announced a collaboration with some of the United Kingdom's leading payments firms in order to establish a better framework for the detection and prevention of fraud in the payment system. The press release, which is linked in the podcast description, provides that Pay.UK has signed contracts with industry partners, including Visa, uh, Synetics Solutions and FeatureSpace, to test the potential benefits of the service before making a decision on next steps for development, where The initiative claims to create a new overlay service for UK banks and building societies that will safely and securely 
analyze money flows and use predictive intelligence proactively to detect fraud and help prevent crime before it occurs. This week's final piece of fraud news is, as I said, from the Financial Ombudsman Service in the UK, which has released data indicating that there's been an increase in fraud on in scam complaints this year when compared to the figures for 21-22. In 2021-22, the Financial Ombudsman Service received 18,450 complaints from the victims of fraud, whereas for the year 2022-23, 21,918 complaints were received. The Ombudsman Service drilled into the figures a little more and identified that of the complaints for 22-23, some 10,985 were complaints of authorised push payment fraud, which is an increase of 17% on 2021-2022. The press release linked in the podcast description also highlights the rise in the hybrid scam, which are scams which draw on elements of a range of scam types in order to dupe victims. There is also an increase, the report identifies, in the number of scams being allied to cryptocurrency. More on cryptocurrency in a bit, because we seem to get a never-ending stream of cryptocurrency news. But before that, we'll look at money laundering stories this week. There's a good range of money laundering news this week, mainly in the form of information being pumped out by government and various agencies in the United Kingdom, with some form of money laundering oversight. We'll start with His Majesty's Treasury, which has approved revisions to the Joint Money Laundering Steering Group guidance on anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism. The updated guidance has received ministerial approval and is available to view at the link in the podcast description. Next in money laundering news, His Majesty's Treasury has published two documents concerned with the UK's anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism regime. The first document is Enhanced Due Diligence designation of de minimis assessments document. This is concerned with the designation of high-risk countries for the purposes of money laundering. The proposal is to change the subordinated legislation to speed up the designation to align the statutory instrument with the Financial Action Task Forces, the FATF, designation more swiftly than is currently the case, where, according to the report or the assessment, The current administrative and parliamentary process can prolong updates to the UK's list. Therefore, in order to ensure that the regulations are updated more swiftly to reflect high-risk jurisdictions listed by the FATF, legislative change is necessary to ensure the latest findings are reflected in a more streamlined way. For this, the Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act 2018, or SAMLA, will be amended to confer powers to the money laundering regulations to define high-risk countries as those identified by the FATF unless otherwise specified. Link to the document is in the podcast description. Now, this other story again comes from Her Majesty's, uh, His Majesty's Treasury, and it's published a review of the United Kingdom's AML and CFT regulatory and supervisory regime. You may recall this has been something which is brewing for a while, and this is something the government has indicated it's looking at and it's looking to reform some of the law in this area. You'll recall that when we looked at this last year, the government was reasonably pleased with the content, broadly reasonably pleased with the content of the regime. And to remind you, it said insofar as supervision is concerned, reform is needed, 
but it is yet unclear the direction it should take. In more positive views, the regulations in more positive news, that is, the regulations in force are deemed to be the right ones to meet the FATF's recommendations. The government commits to the publication of clear objectives to the money laundering regulations in order to align with the FATF's methodology and to embed a renewed definition of effectiveness. Risk will be assessed using existing systems, but the government commits to a, a system-wide effort to improve risk understanding and information sharing around risks and threats. In terms of broadening effectiveness, the government continues to engage with stakeholders concerning understanding the application of new technologies, challenges faced by small or newly regulated firms, incentives of the current system, and the supervisory approach to the risk-based approach. Finally, the current guidance will not be overhauled at this time. Now, the link to that can be found in the podcast description, but that's very much a live story, and I suspect there will be some movement on it over the next few weeks. That's it for money laundering. Now to bribery and anti-corruption. One bit just came under the wire this week, and the other bit is something to look forward to for next year. So... It's a bit thin on the ground, but the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, has urged that Ukraine reinstate its asset disclosure obligations for Ukrainian officials. This requirement was suspended when Russia invaded, but the IMF has urged its return as an, as an aspect of the anti-corruption element of the $15.6 billion assistance package which has been earmarked for Ukraine. An initial timeline of the end of July has been set. The other piece of news is a bit of a jolly, with the announcement that the International Anti-Corruption Conference will be held in Vilnius, Lithuania, from 18th to the 21st of June 2024. The link to that announcement is in the podcast description. Now, a bit of news on something we don't normally get much of, certainly not recently anyway. But anyway, this is a bit of market abuse news, and it comes from the United States, where the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, has announced charges against a number of individuals for insider dealing. As the press release provides, first, Amit Degar, a former Pfizer Incorporated employee, and his close friend and business partner, Atul Biwapurka, for trading in advance of the company's November 5th, 2021 announcement that a randomized double-blind study of its COVID-19 antiviral treatment, Paxlovid, was successful. Following that announcement, in which Pfizer's CEO referred to the news as a genuine game-changer in the global efforts to halt the devastation of the pandemic, the company's stock price increased by nearly 11%, the largest single-day price move in that stock since 2009. Degar and Perkers trading generated approximately $214,395 and $60,000 $300, respectively, in illicit profits, which amounted to one-day investment returns of 2,458% and 791%, respectively. The other charges relate to a stockbroker and his friend in connection with trading on non-public information. According to the press release, Stephen Teixeira purchased call options on several issuers ahead of the announcement of deals and it is further alleged, tipped off his friends, including Jordan Meadow, so they would also be able to trade. Teixeira obtained the information after accessing his girlfriend's laptop while she was working from home during the COVID-19 pandemic. His girlfriend was an employee of an investment bank. Link to both 
press releases can be found in the podcast description. That's it for market abuse. Now we turn to regulatory and a roundup of other news before we look at the brief cyber news, which has been on the wires this week. First, the regulatory and other news is a bit of a mixed bag of stories, a bit of a pick and mix. We'll start with a speech by Emily Shepard, the Chief Operating Officer and Executive Director of Authorizations at the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK. While there was nothing too surprising in the speech, it is useful in that it reiterates the centrality of culture to the Financial Conduct Authority's supervisory model with a reminder that to work at a senior level in financial services you need to pass and continue to meet the conditions of a fitness and proprietary, propriety assessment. This includes consideration of honesty, integrity and reputation. It's good to see that the tone from the top message remains strong. Allied to this is a message on recruitment and how firms should ensure that sufficient effort goes into recruitment to ensure that rolling bad apples are stopped and, where necessary, first might extend probationary periods, if I can just say that word, add extra monitoring or restrict activity to prevent the sorts of behaviour which might call the industry into disrepute. Indeed, Shepard remarks that the FCA found that some firms were willing to turn a blind eye to their new recruits being dismissed from other firms for market abuse, expenses fraud and sexual harassment. Link to the speech is in the podcast description. The other news in this area, I suppose you could regard them as mildly linked to one another. The first is that the Law Commission of England and Wales has published its final report on the recognition and protection of digital assets. Naturally, this is central to the crypto world and ensuring that the English legal system is at the edge of the settled legal understanding in this area so that risk might be more appropriately managed. The report concludes in brief that while the common law, which is the judge-made law, is well-placed to provide an appropriately robust framework for digital assets, both known and to be developed. It should be underpinned by a legislative framework, principally to confirm the third category of personal property deemed necessary so that crypto does not fall between traditional legal categories. Now, in not entirely unconnected news, but not in any sense was any of this coordinated, the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, has issued an update on the implementation of standards on virtual assets and virtual asset providers, so-called VASPs. The update relates to a broad range of assets, but highlights include updates to Recommendation 15 in the FATF 40, its interpretive note, as well as the travel rule and its interpretive note. The FATF is concerned about the regulatory gaps in some jurisdictions respecting both virtual assets and virtual asset service providers. The link to the report is in the podcast description. Now, in cyber news this week, which has usually been packed, but this week there's not much of it. But as I said at the beginning, I suspect that's not because cyber attacks have suddenly either reduced or stopped, but rather that they have not yet been reported. To be frank, not a lot has happened, but we'll start in the US, where the New York City Department of Education has confirmed that following a cyber event, the personal information of 45,000 students and staff has been put at risk, with the information compromised being personal information such as birth dates and social security numbers. 
The event is being investigated by the NYPD and the FBI, with more information expected over the coming week. In terms of ongoing news, the National Health Service in the United Kingdom has announced that the cyber attack on the University of Manchester, which we covered in previous weeks, may have compromised the personal data of 45,000 patients. Now, the university held the data as part of a research project. However, there is a little speculation involved in this at the moment, as precise numbers affected have not been identified as precisely as we might have liked. Now, on that University of Manchester attack, a further update has been issued by the university, which indicates that only a small proportion of students and alumni may have been affected. Sticking with higher education, the University of California, Los Angeles, has announced that it is also the victim of the Move It cyber attack, which brings, I believe, the total number of organisations impacted by that attack to over 100. In other cyber attack news, a report by the Swiss Federal Intelligence Service has highlighted the potential for the activation of the Collective Defence Clause, Article 5, of the NATO Agreement if there is a sufficiently serious cyber attack on a NATO member nation. This is not the first time this has been suggested, and I suspect it will not be the last, particularly given the rumblings that continue to come from Russia. And the final piece of cyber attack news this week is from the National Cyber Security Centre in the United Kingdom, which has marked, it's a bizarre thing this, it's marked the 20th anniversary of the first cyber attack on the UK government. It's an interesting little press release which I've linked in the podcast description. You'll see how it talks about the level of preparedness is better now than it was then. Although, that being said, I have seen stories in the last couple of weeks that question the strength of certain government information, websites and so on, that could, the strength they have in resisting a cyber attack. But we'll leave that for now and let them have their little celebration, if that's what you can call it. Right, that's it for this episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.